The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream the library online. Learn more at gettysburgcollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Hunterstown, Adams County. On July 2nd, 1863, while the Battle of Gettysburg raged, the battle for the extreme left of Robert E. Lee's line happened here at Hunterstown. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Hunterstown is author J.D. Petruzzi. J.D., welcome back. Thank you, Brady. J.D., uh, you are a four-time guest here in Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, remind everybody about your, your background. Well, yeah, and I, at fourth time, I thought I would have got a t-shirt by now, but anyway. I'll We're on cable, so. <laughs> I understand. Um, well, at the risk of being one of the most hated people on PCN, I'm actually an insurance salesman by day. Um, ever since college, really, that's, that's been my avocation. The, the one good thing about it, though, is because I kind of set my own schedule, that allows me the free time you know to do the research and and writing and so forth and actually to do things like this as well um so it, it's definitely an advantage you know in, in in that respect but um long before that when i was probably seven or eight years old like a lot of boys uh, that age i discovered the cowboys and indians and all the exciting stuff that happens out in the old west and so i became very enamored with that but as i studied a lot of the figures that I was running into then, um, fellas like George Custer, uh, Wesley Merritt, George Crook, Phil Sheridan, you know, you name it. I started discovering that these guys here in the 1870s and 1880s fought in something called the American Civil War in the 1860s. Um, that all these fellas had a history that guys like George Custer, it wasn't just the Little Bighorn in 1876. There was something that happened a decade before that. And I started getting really interested in the Civil War, um, particularly weapons. I was fascinated with weapons and very fascinated with the cavalry. I've always loved horses. I think they're the most noble you know, animal and really kind of the unsung hero of the Civil War and the cavalry and the artillery in particular because the horses are the ones that are moving the cannons and moving the men. And they're really, when you're talking about a cavalryman in the Civil War or before and after, as long as across this planet we've had mounted cavalry, you know, on horseback, um, they are the second very important part of that. Without, without a horse, a cavalryman is an infantry. Um, that interest in the cavalry then led me, as I started studying the Civil War, into an interest of 
all of these actions that happen, um, in particular, like when you're talking about the Gettysburg campaign, the cavalry of both sides did really all of the fighting except for those main infantry battles. And that's true with every campaign, um, just like Hunterstown here. We're going to get into a lot of the details of what happened here, but it's really a sideshow to the big show, you know, and it's something um, small and obscure, and maybe because it's cavalry, uh, it's not as interesting as the big battle where you have 100,000 soldiers all fighting each other, but it's a very important part of the story and actually does have an indirect impact on the way the Gettysburg battle itself played out over the course of those three days. Um, so that was really my main interest, um, you know, studying the cavalry. And when I started hooking up with a good friend of mine, and I know he's been a guest several times um, by himself, and we've, we've done a show together, Eric Wittenberg. Uh, we, we started talking back in the 1990s in the early days of the internet and he was just writing his first book and also was very interested in the cavalry and in those obscure lesser known actions and we started getting together doing writing together uh, and lo and behold did our first book. Um, Plenty of Blame to Go Around is the title of it and in fact one of the chapters features uh, the Battle of Hunterstown here because it's all about the Confederate cavalry leader Jeb Stewart's ride into Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863, um, which leads to the Gettysburg campaign. You guys are collaborating on a new project, is that right? We are, yes, yeah, several. We're, we're constantly, um, you know, the past 10 or 15 years, we, we constantly throw stuff back and forth, different ideas. Um, probably the, the most ambitious, we've been talking lately about doing a, a multi-volume history, and, and here's, your, here's your cavalry concentration on all of the cavalry actions during the Civil War, both Eastern and Western theater. So number one, if I live long enough <laughs> to do that, and it may be, um, probably it would be eight or 10 volumes, I would imagine, but you know, my, myself and Eric and, and folks like us have such a love for these little actions and what the cavalry did um, and the fact that it's, you know, so far overshadowed by all of those big battles and big campaigns that we want to tell that story so bad that we want to do it from beginning to end. So it's ambitious, you know, we'll see. We're, we're starting to work on it and um, with any luck, we, we might actually get something like that done. So. Hunterstown is often overshadowed by the big show, Gettysburg. Uh, but let's talk about why Gettysburg. What brings Robert E. Lee into Pennsylvania in 1863? Sure. sure. And, and a lot of the, the viewers, we were talking about this earlier, you know, uh, many folks that are, that are pretty deep into the Civil War know the story, I think, of those first couple years and, and how the two armies get into Pennsylvania. But it bears repeating um, it, at least sort of a synopsis because when we talk about the Gettysburg campaign and the two armies getting into Pennsylvania, that directly affects why Hunterstown happens and why those different combatants are here. Um, the first two years of the war, you know, as many folks know, uh, in many ways here in the Eastern Theater really go the Confederates' way. And when Robert E. Lee um, is finally appointed uh, commander of the Confederate Army here in the East and the Army of Northern Virginia, he's seeing some major battlefield victories. You know, at places just before Gettysburg in, in the six or eight months prior to that, um, at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Um, so much so that he proposes again for the second time to take the war into the northern states to, to try to relieve um, battle-weary Virginia which has just been sapped of not only personnel and war material, but the basic things um, 
uh, you talk about the Shenandoah Valley being the breadbasket of the Confederacy, that breadbasket has been traversed uh, so many times, and possession has switched between the two armies so many times, and the area has been so devastated up until that point um, that food is scarce, the things that the people themselves need is scarce, it's very difficult for the Confederate Army to live off the land, you know, to feed itself, and an army marches on its stomach, uh, as the old cliche goes. So he proposes a second time to uh, take the army into Maryland and into Pennsylvania with the plan specifically of trying to threaten major cities, such as, of course, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Washington City, um, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Philadelphia, and, of course, Harrisburg, the capital of, of Pennsylvania here. He feels if he can, if he's able to threaten those major cities on the heels of the, the Confederate victories that he's experienced before, that that could change the tide of the war and perhaps even bring in foreign support on the side of the Confederacy. So he proposes to take the army into Pennsylvania. Um, in addition to that, Robert E. Lee also decides to approve a plan by the Confederate Cavalry Commander Jeb Stuart to take most of his very proud, very experienced, very battle successful Confederate cavalry into Pennsylvania on a separate mission um, to do as much damage as he can to the Northern War effort. Um, and he agrees to try to protect the right of the Confederate Army going in, into Pennsylvania all the while doing as much damage as he can. So we're talking about a approximately 200 mile ride, um, the last hundred of it or so deep in the enemy territory, all the while trying to maintain contact with one of the Confederate corps, that of General Richard Ewell, which has gone into Pennsylvania ahead of him. Now this is before helicopters and GPS and cell phones and all the digital technology and everything we have. So it's a very tall order for someone to do in 1863, you know, with the, the technology and the road system and everything else at the time. Very tall order, but Lee approves the plan. And so the story of Hunterstown here really begins back on June 22nd, June 23rd, when Lee approves that plan, and then a couple days later when Jeb Stuart begins his march into Pennsylvania. <clears throat> He's gonna take his three best brigades, so if you're going to do this, if you're going to make this trek and you're going to go into Pennsylvania and you're going to be behind enemy territory and lose contact with the army, but somehow try to then establish and maintain contact and protect that army, you want your three best sluggers of all your brigades. So he takes his three best. Um, one of them is commanded by General Wade Hampton. He has no prior military experience, <clears throat> but he's considered to be, at the time, the richest man in the South in the southern states. So Wade Hampton actually personally finances several units that, that end up in the Confederate Army. Um, Wade Hampton is, is one of those brigades who marches with the two other brigades of uh, Jeb Stuart into Pennsylvania. During those seven or eight days, Jeb Stuart gets into several major battles and skirmishes, which completely throws his um, plans off the track to start with. So he's behind schedule from the very first day. However, by the time July 1st comes and Jeb Stewart has finally reached the area of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where he plans to, to threaten the army barracks there and, 
and he's going to set the gas works and, and um, uh, part of the barracks on fire and, and basically laid siege to the town. What he's done there on July 1st, though, is on his march to Gettysburg, he left Wade Hampton back at a little town called Dillsburg, which still exists today, just, just to the, uh, the south of Carlisle. And the reason that he leaves Wade Hampton there and his brigade is because Wade has been given the odious task of managing and marching the 125 Federal Army wagons that Jeb Stewart had captured just outside of Washington, D.C. a few days before. So trying to drag all of those wagons even further into Pennsylvania is just going to slow the column down. So Jeb Stewart goes on to Carlisle. Wade Hampton is still with his brigade and all the wagons at Dillsburg on July 1st. And all the while for that week, of course, we, we all know the story of the Confederate Army being left blind because they don't know where Jeb Stewart is. They've been, Robert E. Lee has been sending out couriers trying to find him. There's been absolutely no contact. Robert E. Lee, even though he still has a lot of cavalry with him, I think felt that Jeb Stewart embodied his cavalry and was personally his eyes and ears and depended on him as though his life depended on it. He wanted Jeb Stewart with him. One of the couriers sent out on July 1st finally finds Jeb Stewart over at Carlisle and tells him to get back to the Gettysburg area because, of course, this is July 1st, uh, the first day of the battle. We've had a big battle back there. So finally, there's the relief of Jeb Stewart knowing where the Army of Northern Virginia is. He makes plans to basically finish up his siege of Carlisle um, and then march over to Gettysburg per Robert E. Lee's orders. Now, because Wade Hampton is down at Dillsburg, this is going to mean that there's, going to, there's two separate marches for Jeb Stewart's cavalry to come back to the Gettysburg area. Um, Wade Hampton is going to march through the night. So it's going to be late on the afternoon of July 2nd, just about the time when Longstreet's assault is kicking off late on the afternoon back on the main battlefield. Wade Hampton finally arrives here in Hunterstown. We're here on the historic um, square, which actually was shaped like a triangle, but we always call them squares. Um, here in the little town of Hunterstown is the way it would have been in July 1863. Brady, if you and I were sitting here on that afternoon of July 2nd, 1863, we'd be getting knocked over <laughs> right now by a miles long train of Wade Hampton's cavalry and those 125 wagons. If we survive that, I don't know that we would survive the skirmish that's going to be coming here in a little bit. But again, if we were sitting here just like the townsfolk of, of Hunterstown back then, and we're surrounded by historic homes, it's, it's really neat that we've actually got several places here that existed back in 1863 uh, that we can, we can look at and enjoy and, and interpret today. Uh, but if we were here, we'd be watching that miles-long train of uh, Wade Hampton's brigade and all those wagons coming through. Um, some of the Confederates are dropping out of the column and telling the townsfolk, come on and see some of the most famous men in America, Wade Hampton and the Confederate cavalry, and um, they're, they're proud, and you know, they're on the heels of the, the seven or eight days of the battles and skirmishes that they just got into, but they are tired, <laughs> and they are exhausted, and they're money. They've had no sleep, um, nothing like a bath or, or washing up. The food's been terrible whatever they can possibly get along the way. Again, like I said, this is 200 mile trek that they've just made in the course of seven or eight days. Um, they're, they're hungry, they're tired, they're exhausted. 
the horses have just been able to graze and get whatever they can along the way. So you can imagine the condition that they're in. But they're all marching past us down the roads and on the, um, the road to Gettysburg out to today's Route 30 or the York Pike, as it was known then, to, to follow Lee's orders and then meet up with Jeb Stewart back at Gettysburg. Um, Jeb Stewart has his headquarters at a place called the William Stallsmith Farm, which we can see today. Uh, so Wade Hampton is, is trying to meet up with him. However, just at about the moment when Wade Hampton's column passes through the square here in Hunterstown and con continues on toward Gettysburg, his rear guard is going to get a little bit of a surprise <laughs> right where we're sitting. And that's when things start to happen. Uh, before we get to the battle, uh, Hunterstown is pretty impressive today. It's a small place, but it hasn't changed much. It had a pretty impressive history before the battle. Can we talk about Hunterstown before the, the It did, the war? sure, yeah. It, um, it, it's great to come out here and enjoy it today, and, and there's very little interpretation, you know, really than um, a, a small monument we'll talk about later and a wayside, and really that's about it. Uh, it seems like just a sleepy little crossroads. I think the mailing address here is actually Gettysburg. I don't think the people, <clears throat> I may be wrong, but I don't even think Hunterstown is a mailing address. But um, yeah, back in the early 1700s, um, this town was founded on the crossroads of some old Indian trails. So we're actually sitting on that old Indian trail that came through here. Uh, it was founded by a fellow named David Hunter uh, in I think 1741 or so, so about uh, 30 years or so before the, the Revolutionary War. Um, but he does become a very well-respected colonel in George Washington's army during the Revolutionary War. And in fact, Hunterstown was known as, quote, the hotbed of rebellion back in those days because there were um, a lot of folks here, you know, who supported the Revolutionary War effort. A lot of soldiers came here. If you check a lot of the old cemeteries, you're going to see a lot of Revolutionary War soldiers um, that came from the area that, that, that fought on the side of, of Washington's army. So it was known as a real hotbed, um, a, a very, I guess if you want to call it kind of like a little industrial town, you know, for that time period, 250 years ago, there were a lot of wagon makers here, uh, later on leading to the Studebaker line, which is a total different <laughs> tangent, but you can kind of see where, where things uh, are coming from. There were famous cigar makers here, and Hunterstown at the time was also known as the rocking chair capital of the world because there were so many good chair makers that were here. You know, you can just imagine, like I said, you look now and there's how, however many homes here and it just seems like an insignificant little place. But it was, it was a major uh, crossroads for Indian trails and that is where here at the crossroads that David Hunter established the town. Um, it's gonna go on after the Revolutionary War to, to still feature prominently in Adams County, but something happens over in Gettysburg um, a fellow named Gettys happens to donate some land once they're trying to find the capital for, for Adams County uh, or the, the, the county seat. And he donates some land for a courthouse and a county jail and that type of thing. And so that really shifts the focus in this county over to Gettysburg and it ends up being the county seat. And then Hunterstown starts to relegate into to more obscurity, you know, during the 1800s. But it really was a very important town and really vied for Gettysburg. In fact, you know, many of the old records will tell you that, that Hunterstown was actually more important at that time than Gettysburg and a larger town. And Hunterstown had a unique guest that stayed just behind us, right? He, they, it certainly did, yes. Back in October of 1794, um, on his way back from quelling the, the Whisker Rebellion um, and coming back from Bedford, uh, George Washington, 
a sitting, the sitting president, of course, at the time, on his way back, stopped here in Hunterstown at a blacksmith shop that we're just sitting about 150 yards away from. It's right behind my right shoulder uh, to have one of the horses in his column shod. Uh, stayed here for several hours, relaxed by a stream, you know, that, uh, that goes over there. So I'm sure a lot of the men and a lot of the horses were, were watered in that stream. Um, so yeah, very, very famous visitor was here. <laughs> and uh, uh, we had also, I mentioned before about the, the major um, Indian trails, you know, that, that went through here. <clears throat> Excuse me. The reason that George Washington and his column came through Hunterstown at the time is because uh, the road that's just behind us that, that started as that old Indian trail was known then as the Great Road. Um, kind of the interstate of the 1700s in this area, even though it was just a, you know, just a one-lane dirt road, it was a very important east-west passage. And that's why George Washington used this road to go from Bedford all the way back to Philadelphia. Um, little towns here like Mumbusburg, um, uh, New Oxford, uh, all, all these little towns are in this area uh, were on or close to this major road and that's how they grew back then. But it's totally different today. Now it's just a minor back road and our interstates and major roads are all somewhere else, <laughs> not in this area. Now we mentioned Wade Hampton, his, his force moving through here, but you said something interesting. You said he had no military experience, but he was very wealthy. Uh, did he just buy his position? How did that work in the Civil War? Yeah, good question. And, there, and there's, of course, that happened quite a bit. You know, there are many, especially on the northern side, there are many officers that if they had political connections or money, or if they just raised a regiment, you know, um, they could have had no military experience whatsoever. But just because of the fact that they raised the regiment and maybe ponied up a few bucks to pay for some stuff, you know, they ended up being the colonel. Um, in Wade Hampton's case, he did come from a very martial family. So he had, you know, military in his, ba uh, his, his family background, but none specifically for him per se. Um, but being one of the richest men, yeah, that put him in that position where he could finance some units, um, you know, promotion for him came rather early, but the one thing about Wade Hampton, and I think anybody who really studies the cavalry and the cavalry leaders, and especially on the southern side, will tell you that whatever he did not learn um, prior to the Civil War, he learned very fast because he became a master battlefield tactician, and I think a lot of it had to do with his personality. Wade Hampton was very no-nonsense. He was totally different and the opposite from a Jeb Stewart who wore a red crimson cape and a big hat with a big ostrich plume in it. Wade Hampton was all business, kind of on the, the level of a John Buford, you know, for instance, who did have a martial background, but was no nonsense, all business. If you crossed him, he lowered the hammer hard. Wade Hampton was basically the same way. Even though he had no experience, he became such a good battlefield tactician that he ultimately became the commander of the Confederate cavalry here for the Army of Northern Virginia after Jeb Stewart's mortal wounding in 1864. And it's my opinion, and I think the opinion of a lot of other scholars, that Wade Hampton, as far as a battlefield tactician and a strategist, was actually superior to Jeb Stewart. But Jeb Stewart had the charisma. <clears throat> and of course, his men loved him. And he had to look for it. You know, you couldn't, couldn't miss him on a battlefield. Uh, but Wade Hampton, uh, would outflank you and get you. <laughs> now, Hampton's going to meet his, uh, his nemesis on this day in the form of, at least some case, George Armstrong Custer. Very different background than Hampton, Rick, coming up. Can we talk about him? Yes, very much. Uh, uh, George Custer, 
of course, graduated in that second class that was released in 1861 from West Point. Um, and you mentioned these connections, and also, in fact, the one uh, particular officer that George Custer is going to face early on in the fighting here at Hunterstown was one of his best friends from West Point, uh, a fellow with a very aristocratic name of uh, Pierce Manning Butler Young. So that's a mouthful, <laughs> like a lot of those are. And I think a lot of those, those names are, you know, come from the, the families, his, his ancestors and so forth. Um, but Pierce Young and George Custer were very, very close. And in fact, probably from what I've seen in looking at some of the original letters that they wrote back and forth, at the very least, best friends. Um, they actually talked as, you know, men did back in the Victorian area, in the Civil War area. They told each other in their letters how much they loved each other. That in fact, uh, when the Civil War was just starting and, and Custer was being graduated from West Point, they lamented back and forth in a couple of letters to each other how much they hoped they did not face each other on the battlefield. Uh, that they had such a love and respect for each other that they hoped the war would be over soon and that they would never face each other. Here on that afternoon of July 2nd, 1863, as the skirmishing begins, who is George Custer going to personally face and look across the battlefield at but Colonel Young? Tragic in a lot yeah, of ways. It is. Uh, let's take us back to that day, July 2nd. Hampton's moving through. Uh, mm -hmm. What happens? As soon as Hampton's column uh, gets through the square and basically gets to the town of Hunterstown and is making his way to Gettysburg, um, his rear guard, which is personally commanded, and this is a little bit unusual in situations like this, but it's personally commanded by Colonel Young. And he has Company C of the Cobb's Legion Cavalry, okay? Kind of a, a demi-regiment, they call it a legion because it didn't have enough companies to fill out a regiment, uh, but it was a Georgia Legion of Cavalry. And like I said, a, a bit unusual that Colonel Young would personally be leading this unit, you know, in, in his legion that day, um, but uh, not unheard of. So Pierce Young is right here in the square where we're sitting today filming this, um, watching Wade Hampton's rear of his column as he proceeds to Gettysburg to make sure that all these roads are secure, that the area is secure, that they're not gonna get ambushed. And this is really standard operating procedure. When infantry is moving, either through friendly or enemy territory, there are always cavalry or somebody that's always out on their flanks and their advance guard and their rear guard to watch everything. When it's cavalry, they have cavalry units that do the same thing. Even though cavalry is a little more mobile, you've got to watch all these roads and make sure you don't get ambushed. They do the same thing in the Army today. When during the first Gulf War, when the tanks in the desert you know, were proceeding, they had the helicopters, the air cavalry, up in the air watching the flanks. So they always do that. And then they um, drop down when the column stops to protect the whole area. That's the exact same thing that they did back in 1863 with the horses. So this very important rear guard is here in the square, basically securing everything, but just up the road a little ways, um, uh, towards the York Pike a little further down, we have a fella named General Judson Kilpatrick, who is leading the third division of Federal Cavalry in the Army of the Potomac, commanded, of course, by General George Meade. Kilpatrick, for the last couple of days, has been looking for Jeb Stewart, um, who has completely slipped out of Kilpatrick's grasp after they had an all-day battle back on June the 30th in Hanover, Pennsylvania. Somehow, 
Jeb Stewart that night of June the 30th was able to completely slip out of Kilpatrick's grasp even after fighting all day with nearly 6,000 Confederate cavalrymen and artillery. Um, Jeb Stewart goes a bit to the east and then he starts going north and that's how he makes his way to Carlisle to try to slip around Kilpatrick. So Kilpatrick loses him, he, he spends that night all day of July 1st as the battle's raging in Gettysburg trying to find Jeb Stewart maybe somewhere north of Hanover. So he, he hasn't found him, Kilpatrick uh, finally gets orders to come in on the right flank of the Union Army, which of course facing against the Confederates, that's gonna be the Confederate left flank. The right flank of the Union Army is where Kilpatrick is supposed to bring his cavalry, about 3,500 troopers and two brigades. Uh, one commanded by George Custer, the Michigan Cavalry Brigade, the second commanded by Elon Farnsworth, um, made up of Pennsylvanians and New Yorkers and Vermonters, Farnsworth, by the way, is going to be killed in a charge that bears his name uh, the very next day after this on July 3rd on the main Gettysburg battlefield. Farnsworth's brigade is not really going to be engaged here so much at Hunterstown. It's basically going to be in support, and his artillery is going to be somewhat engaged. But really, this fight is all George Custer. So as Colonel Young is here in the square with the rear guard of Hampton's uh, column, and Kilpatrick is trying to make for the same area, this is where we have this classic meeting engagement, which is really what Hunterstown is, um, why this fight starts here. Start, it's gonna start out as a little skirmish, not far from the square, just down this road, which is behind us a couple hundred yards on a, on a slight ridge. Um, as Pierce Young is basically there in the road and watching for any movement, that's when the advance guard of Kilpatrick's division, and it's commanded uh, by a Captain Llewellyn Estes, who is in command that day of Company A of the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry. The 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, fatefully here, is going to start this battle, just like they started the battle two days earlier at Hanover against Jeb Stewart. So these guys, the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, had only been together actually since the previous fall. Their baptism of fire was there at Hanover a couple days ago. Their second baptism is gonna happen right here. So within basically 48 hours, they're gonna get hammered twice. Uh, so his, Kilpatrick's advance guard sees Young and the Confederates. Estes decides immediately to charge. He tells all of his troopers to draw their sabers and charge. They charge a couple hundred yards up the road and hit Young hard enough that there's going to be a running fight right back to our position mm. here in the square. Where we're sitting again now, if we were here on that afternoon of July 2nd, 1863, had we survived Hampton's Column going through, we'd have a real tough time <laughs> with the approximately 80, because there was about 40 on both sides in these two units, uh, about 80 cavalrymen literally slugging it out here in the square. This has a purpose. Why are they fighting here? Why, why are the two engaging? Young knows in his capacity as the rear guard leader that he's got to find out who this is, and then he's going to have to eventually warn the rest of Hampton's Column. So either immediately or shortly after the fighting breaks out, Colonel Young sends a runner to Hampton's column to tell him that yes, there is enemy cavalry that's here in our rear. Estes, in command of the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry's Company A, knows that as the advance guard, he has to do the exact same thing. So either immediately or shortly after, he sends another runner to Kilpatrick's column to tell him that he has met the enemy here, this very place that Kilpatrick intends to pass through in order to get to the right flank of the Union Army. So it can best be described as a mob scene, you know, here, the, the cavalrymen shooting at each other, 
uh, trying to slash each other with their blades. There are a few casualties that are here, but after approximately 15 or 20 minutes, it starts to peter out here, um, and then they basically withdraw. Young knows that now that he's determined there's enemy here uh, and trying to find out how much they are in force and so forth, that he now has warned Hampton, but he needs to make his way back to the column where he's got supports because neither one of these fellows know who's behind them and you know how many troops they, they might have in support. So both sides get warned. Kilpatrick gets word that there's Confederate cavalry here and Hampton gets word that there's Federal cavalry in his rear. Hampton then makes the decision to turn most of his column around, most of which has actually, actually reached the outskirts of Gettysburg, um, to face uh, this area and any potential threat. Kilpatrick, being as impetuous as he is, and it's probably you know, really good that these two young fellows and, and brand, new, brand newly minted Brigadier Generals are serving in the same division, because Custer and Kilpatrick are really two of a kind. And this is going to play out here today and also during the rest of the wars, as long as they're together. Uh, so both sides get warned. Kilpatrick starts to make his way here with the rest of his division. Um, and in addition to that, it's also standard operating procedure that they're going to send men out on all the roads to try to find out what the makeup of each you know, enemy force is. As they're doing that, just over my right shoulder, probably about 500 yards, is a prominent ridge which is named after um, the property owner, John Tate, um, who owns the ridge that bears his name that also goes into what's called the Felty Ridge. Um, property owned by George Felty on the main battlefield down there. It's prominent enough of a ridge that Custer and Kilpatrick both see it as a good staging point. Because as they look down from that ridge, there's basically a straight road which happens to have very stout rail fences on both sides. So it's going to bottle any actions you know, that the cavalry are going to try to do. But there's fields on both sides and you can see it pretty good ways, probably about a half a mile. Unfortunately, though, for Custer, when we get to this, there's a little curve in the road and then another ridge behind it where you can't really see anything. So as Kilpatrick sees a good position to set up there on that ridge, just opposite him on a ridge which bears the name of the property owner, then John Gilbert, Wade Hampton is going to set up his cavalry. So kind of unbeknownst to both sides, they're both forming up about a half a mile apart battle lines which are pretty formidable because there are several thousand cavalry on both sides. True to form, however, Custer is going to ride up to the front and he's going to sit on that ridge probably just in the middle of the road and he's going to look down there and who does he see and what all does he see is his old buddy Colonel Young who just had the scrap here in the square standing defiantly in the road down there with a few dozen of those Cobb Legion Confederate cavalry. And Custer pulls out his big, long, straight Polito blade, holds it high enough in the air for everybody to see, and says, tells the commander of Company A of the 6th Michigan Cavalry, Captain Henry Thompson, that he wants to charge those men. Before Thompson can even get a word out, Custer says, I'll lead you this time, boys, come on. And he gallops down the road, literally by himself, because everybody is taken aback and kind of doing a double take. Nobody's ready for this. So as fast as the men can, about 50 or 60 men of this Company A, 6 Michigan Cavalry are gonna take off after Custer. This is, here at Hunterstown, and this is one of the important facets, I think, of the battle. 
This is the very first time that George Custer, as a general, is going to personally lead a mounted charge. Mm. He's going to do it in spades a couple of times the next day, July 3rd, out of what we know as East Cavalry Field. But here at Hunterstown, it's that very first time and probably sets the stage for what he's going to be doing the next day. So he gallops down the road, crashes in to Colonel Young's men. They probably saw each other. You know, they may have, they may have known each other's flags. Custer had already gotten a real fast reputation, you know, and his gaudy uniform that, that he put on when he was made a Brigadier General. So chances are they, they knew each other was there. Um, and again, just like we had in the square, although with more people, it's going to be a mob scene down there at that curve in the road. Hand-to-hand um, -hand fighting, there are several dozen casualties on both sides, but to Custer's, you know, unfortunate situation, Young is going to call for reinforcements and more come in from the Phillips Legion and South Carolina Cavalry. Suddenly there's a couple hundred Confederate Cavalry literally surrounding Custer and his few dozen men. One of the Confederates gets a lucky shot, shoots Custer's horse. The horse goes down. Unfortunately, Custer's trapped underneath, probably one of his legs, you know, stuck under, under his horse. He's, he's struggling, he's trying to break free. All the while, he's got a couple hundred Confederate cavalrymen doing everything they can to shoot this guy and kill him, maybe take his head off with their saber, they're slashing at him. It's so close and he's so stuck that I think if another five seconds would have gone by without this following event happening, obviously Little Bighorn would not be on the tongues of anybody <laughs> in history. It would never play a role in, in American history. At the very moment that it looks as though Custer is probably going to get killed in his dire situation, up rides 23-year-old Private Norville Churchill of his staff, rides up, shoots a fellow who's just about to slash Custer with his saber, reaches down, grabs Custer's arm, pulls him hard enough that he's able to extricate Custer out from under his horse and puts Custer up on his saddle <laughs> behind him. And they, as the cliche is, they gallop off in the moonlight. But <laughs> he literally saves his life. And uh, Custer and, and Churchill are able to get back to um, the federal lines up on the ridge. And obviously his life is saved to fight on another day, but it was so close um, that, you know, Custer knew that Churchill had saved his life. And just, just a little side story, um, about 10 or 12 years later, after the Civil War, as Custer's in command of the 7th Cavalry, in Michigan, he stops at the home of one Norval Churchill, who had saved his life back here at Hunterstown on July 2nd, 1863, and asked Churchill if he'd like to join him on his expedition in Montana <laughs> in 1876. To his eternal credit, Churchill refused. He said, no, he had enough of all that and didn't go. So he, um, uh, unfortunate little bighorn when Custer, you know, got himself killed and literally wiped out the male lineage of the Custer family there. Uh, Churchill uh, saved his own life that time by, by not going. But, but anyway, he's credited with saving Custer's life. And that's really the first phase of the Battle of Hunterstown because when Custer then makes it back to the line, um, the Confederates are going to mount a countercharge. But by that time, um, the, the line up on the Felty Tate Ridge um, the Custer and Kilpatrick are set up is so formidable um, and with the terrain and everything the, the uh, Confederates are not going to be able to you know really do anything against the federal line um, but that's the first phase and it's all Custer and he got very lucky that day. So how does the battle play out? Well 
After Custer uh, finally makes his way back to the federal line, the Confederates, uh, Wade Hampton in particular, is going to mount a countercharge against the federal line that's up on the, the Tate Felty Ridge. Um, but most of it's going to be conducted dismounted. As I mentioned before, the road that goes straight through the battlefield today um, at that time had very strong stout rail fences on both sides of the road. So this is something that's going to bottle in the cavalry if they're mounted in the road. It's basically too high for any of the horses to jump. And what they would typically do back then when cavalry ran into fences is they would either dismount and try to dismantle the fence or literally try to hack it with their sabers. This, this was too strong and the action is just happening too fast. So there is, there's a mounted charge, uh, the Confederates launch of their own in the road, but most of the rest of the cavalry is gonna be dismounted in the fields. They slowly make their way that half mile or so up to the federal line, all the while, of course, the Federals are defending their position and bringing in artillery. Um, Lieutenant Alexander Pennington's battery, which is attached to Custer's division, gets into line on, if you're looking at the federal position on the right side of Kilpatrick or, or Custer's line, and they start firing shells down in the Confederates. There was a very large barn that was on that George Felty farm, um, which unfortunately, I think in about 2007 or 2008, was torn down. But it existed up until that time, a large three-story barn and it was right below the ridge where Kilpatrick had his line. So a lot of the federal troopers were able to use that barn to fire through the windows and it gave them a lot of cover. Um, they used that for quite some time during the second phase of the battle until Pennington accidentally dropped a shell into the barn <laughs> down through the roof. And of course it kind of blew the insides. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the Union soldiers scattered out of there and didn't use the barn so much. But uh, Hampton really could not make any headway against Kilpatrick's line because it was too formidable. And of course, uh, Kilpatrick had artillery where Wade Hampton did not. And that was a great disadvantage to Wade Hampton. So Hampton sends back for artillery support because he abs has absolutely nothing and Kilpatrick has two batteries of artillery with him, uh, 11 cannons in fact, in, in total. Uh, Hampton sends back to Gettysburg for some artillery support and finally, just a little bit before dark, Captain Charles Green's battery of Louisiana artillery is detached from one of the Confederate Infantry Corps and then comes up here to Hunterstown to support Wade Hampton. Uh, so beginning right before dark, the battle, there's gonna be desultory skirmishing and so forth that happens in the fields, but it really devolves into an artillery duel through dark. In fact, there are some local accounts that uh, the, the artillery firing uh, actually lasted until about 11 o'clock that night. You know, with, with the way they kept time back then, uh, it basically it shows that at least for a few hours after that, there was this artillery duel. Why is that going on so long? You know, why is it so important? Well, I think one of the major reasons is Kilpatrick knows uh, by that time that he is just off the federal right flank and he knows the importance of it. He was ordered here. That's cavalry's mission is they've got to watch the flanks and they've got to watch the rear of an army. And of course, Wade Hampton being attacked here and knowing that there's a pretty good force knows that he's going to have to try to keep this area secure at least through nightfall until everything gets worked out, you know, basically with the lines on the main battlefield and where everybody needs to be. The action here at Hunterstown, if we want to talk about really the importance, you know, that it may have had to the main Gettysburg battle, we mentioned before that it's a sideshow to the big show and really doesn't have a major impact on 
really any facet of the way the Gettysburg battle itself plays out, but indirectly does contribute to a way, a, a, a way that some of the actions, though, I think do happen on this, this part of the field. First of all, Hunterstown is about four miles northeast of the main Gettysburg battlefield. So it's pretty close. Um, anything, when you're talking about a major battlefield where you've got 100,000 soldiers, anything within a few miles is either going to be no man's land or it's going to be very important and needs to be protected. Not far from here, basically between here and the southern part of the Gettysburg battlefield is another little ridge called Brinkerhoff's Ridge. And we talked about Jeb Stuart before. Um, on the afternoon of July 2nd, when Jeb Stuart himself, with his other two brigades beside Hampton, arrive on the Gettysburg battlefield and reports to Robert E. Lee, shortly after he does that, um, he heads over to the left flank of the Confederate Army in the area of where his two brigades are starting to camp. And that's going to be his mission to watch that area. There is some Confederate cavalry which is over on the right flank, but Jeb Stuart's mission is, is to watch the left in any threat. That afternoon, he hears firing that's happening not far from an area that we know today as Culp's Hill. As he ventures out that way with his staff and he gets above this area known today as Brinkerhoff's Ridge, he looks down and he sees Confederate infantry, in fact, part of the Stonewall Brigade, fighting against Federal cavalry, which turns out to be the division commanded by Brigadier General David Gregg. Um, Stuart realizes that that area, as he looks it over, is very good for cavalry operations, especially just a bit to the east of the Brinkerhoff's Ridge area. In an area called Crest Ridge and the Rummel Farm area, where there are large plains, open plains, that are very conducive to mounted cavalry operations. And if Jeb Stewart is possibly going to try to make any incursion into the federal right flank in that area, then it's probably going to be made in the area of the Rummel Farm and Crest Ridge and Brinkerhoff's Ridge. So he watches the way the action plays out down there and then makes his plans for the next day, July 3rd, to do just that, to try to make a movement against anyone that will face him over on that side. Not in concert at all with Pickett's Charge, because Jeb Stewart is going to have absolutely nothing to do with Pickett's Charge on July 3rd. His action is totally independent of that, but back on July 2nd is where he makes his plans. That action at Brinkerhoff's Ridge drew off most of the old Stonewall Brigade which very well could have participated in the Confederate attack on Culp's Hill on July 2nd. So throw in those few thousand infantry, and then also possibly throw in some of Wade Hampton's troopers, who, if they would have marched through Hunterstown unmolested and made their way to Gettysburg, some or all of his troopers could have been part of any action there on that part of the field. So what possible difference that we can maybe, as armchair historians looking back, thinking, and even though the, a lot of this is indirect, throw in several more thousand troops on the Confederate side on that attack on Culp's Hill, which was already on three fronts. Johnson and his men and so forth almost have Culp's Hill surrounded during their attack. Put in 2,000, 3,000, 6,000 more troops on the attack, what possibly could have happened? And what may have that spelled for George Meade and the Army of the Potomac for the next day? Who knows? But it, it has 
that potential indirect impact of drawing those Confederate troops off. So if for nothing else, the fight here at Hunterstown definitely has that distinction of playing that, that minor role in basically a what if. You know, not a, not a direct action, but basically a what if, what could have happened. Now there's a monument down the street. Several of the original buildings and landmarks remain. What could we still see today if we wanted to be visitors? Yeah, some great old buildings. Just over my shoulder is the log home of Jacob Grass. Grass was a, a, a very prominent name here, in fact, in, in Hunterstown. Um, it still exists today. Uh, and just to the side of it, it no longer exists, but you can, you can actually see in the back there um, the old original barn uh, foundation and ramp and so forth. Um, uh, I think it was George Grass, his brother, who owned this house. And then just directly across from us um, is the, I said Jacob before, I'm sorry, Jacob Grass, just across from us, owned this hotel. Um, right on the square. All of these buildings were used as a hospital, you know, during the battle and also for Gettysburg as well. Um, when we talk about the importance of, you know, several miles around the battlefield, just about every home, barn, and pigsty in this area was literally used as a hospital. Uh, the Jacob Grass Hotel um, uh, was a very important because of its size and so forth. It taken care of a lot of the wounded that happened here during the Battle of Hunterstown. We can still see those places. The, the John Tate Farm, which is just behind us, um, is the um, property where the original road came out of the square and went to the road to the York Pike where the main battlefield is today. It doesn't exist today. But the previous owners of the Tate Farm are nice enough to put a wayside with a historical photograph there, which, which shows you know, that area and the original road where people can come and see and, and enjoy that today. Um, you mentioned the small monument. We, we were able to put that in uh, really with the previous owners of the Tate Farm. And I think it was back in 2008 um, when that was installed. And um, of course, it, it mentions heavily Custer and his participation here. Um, and I think that's really important when, when you're talking about Hunterstown. Had there not been a George Custer, you know, that conducted most of the fighting, this would probably be even more obscure and less visited than it is today. Um, but it's really neat that you can come out here and see not only the original town square that we're sitting and a lot of these extant homes which still exist, but also a good part of the battlefield. When you do get down to the main battlefield, it's pretty pristine and protected. Unfortunately, I mentioned the Felty Barn had been torn down about a decade ago. Um, it was a great battlefield feature, but you can really see and interpret just about all of the battlefield today except for the southeastern corner where there's a large power generating plant that's down there. Unfortunately, that was lost, but luckily it's not where most of the main fighting happened. So you can go on both of the opposing ridges today and look at across you know, each other, just basically like you're standing at Cemetery Ridge and Seminary Ridge um, over the field of Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. Um, you can do the very same thing here today. And also, the little curve in the road is still there, right where Custer went down. You can go down there, park your car, go out and step in the road, and be in that very same spot where uh, newly minted Brigadier General George Custer led his very first mounted cavalry charge and almost lost his life on that afternoon. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. Don't forget to pick up a copy of our new book, Battlefield, Pennsylvania, written by yours truly, available now. For everyone here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.